Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real-life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. Oh, hello. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. My guest is Andy McQuaid, and he helps multifamily operators and owners maximize their projects through a total cost of ownership lens, right? So looking at things over longer term buy and hold, what multifamily operators can do to improve uh, net operating income, improve asset value, things like that. So we spend a lot of time talking about how he does that for clients. He's based in New York. He's got clients in in a uh, little over a dozen states uh, and has been doing this for a number of years. So we talk about what operators can do better, what type of clients they're working with, um, how to structure some of these multifamily value add projects, uh, and then just kind of real estate market in, in general. So I think, uh, I think it's going to be a good episode for you. I enjoyed it. I took some notes and there's, there's some good stuff there. So we'll have a word from our sponsors and get into the episode with Andy. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by DJE Texas Management Group, a San Antonio, Texas-based real estate investment firm with a track record of transacting on several hundred million dollars of multifamily land and industrial deals throughout Texas. DJE has been in business for over a decade and is approaching 100 team members in San Antonio. To learn more about DJE, visit djetexas.com or the link in the show notes of this episode. This episode is also brought to you by apartmenteducators.com complete ecosystem for professionals to learn how to find, finance, and operate large multifamily properties for profit. You can get started with a free mini course and learn more at apartmenteducators.com or visit the link in the notes. Andy, welcome to the show. How are you? I am well, Devin. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. It's a, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a beautiful day in New York state. It's like 30 degrees. All right. No snow, but here we are. It is what it is. Yeah. So we're talking, we're recording this in uh, November 23. Have you guys gotten snow yet? Uh, we had about two inches a couple of weeks ago that was just a blip. And then it went back up to mid fifties, low sixties. And now we're getting into actual, what will become our winter. So, yeah. Yeah. So been, it's been nice then. It's been better than it has been before. I mean, we've had, you know, six inches of snow on Halloween, so I'll take this sure. over that any day. Sure. Yeah. We're in our sweet spot in San Antonio. You know, it's high, low of 50, high of 70 today, clear skies. Like it's, it's beautiful. And we're coming off a sweltering summer and we'll see what the winter holds, but there's kind of a little sweet spot we're in right now too. So enjoy it while we can. Yes, sir. Um, well, good, man. Well, you know, we're going to talk real estate, talk deals, all that stuff, but kind of before we dive into that, how about some, some background on you for the audience and, and your story and how you got to um, be doing what you're doing now? Sure. Absolutely. So um, first of all, thank you again for having me on. I, I appreciate it. Um, I'm kind of fell into real estate by accident. I applied for a job at a lumberyard when I was 17 years old, senior in high school, just looking to have a summer job before I left for college and um, ended up staying there and working part-time, you know, nights, weekends, whatever. Uh, was a, they offered me a job as a salaried manager a couple of years later. Um, 
withdrew from college. So I'm one of those college dropout people who somehow made it work. Uh, I was a store manager about a year and a half, two years after that, of my own box. And uh, I was recruited by the big orange box at 28 years old to be a district manager over B2B pro sales. And during this time, obviously I'm working with builders and remodelers and reading blueprints and learning the business and understanding all of that kind of stuff. And then when I got to the Home Depot, my core customer was huge multifamily operators, right? I'm in a spot in New York state where there's several offices, whether they're family offices or other operators here with 2,000, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 doors across, you know, upwards of 17 states. I had one client that was 34,000 doors in, in 20 states. So, um, that'll, because I handled their account nationally, they sort of taught me the business. They taught me what their priorities were from a, a, a purchasing procurement operations standpoint. And honestly, Home Depot was not good at a lot of stuff in that market. <laughs> so right. we sort of, found a way to make what Home Depot could do work and refuse to do the things that would hurt the relationship. So these guys taught me what their priorities were. I found solutions for them, found them ways to save money, found them ways to to change kind of what they were doing and and maybe pay, you know, 20 bucks more for item A. And over the next 10 or 15 years, that item A is going to pay them back tenfold. Right. Um, just just because it's something to do. So I had a client that did, you know, six and a half, $7 million with me, everything from appliances to flooring to whatever. And it was about, it wasn't about just being the low price. Like that was part of it. Right. But sometimes it was being the better quality or having the better answer or having the service model that supported what their, their goals were. So that was, that was sort of how I got into it. And then, um, I left for a year, I left Depot went to be a director of sales for a nice high-end reclaimed wood flooring company selling stuff to Amazon and Facebook and Microsoft's offices, Blink, you name it, we did it. And one of the VPs that moved over to procurement and risk management called me for coffee. Coffee turned into a three and a half hour long conversation. He had just taken it over, wanted to know what I would do. He's like, you should just do this full time. Mm. Okay. So I filed an LLC two weeks later and a month after that, left my job and been doing this ever since. So. Yeah, I love it. I love it. What um, I think you mentioned six, seven million bucks, but you know these bigger operators. What was what was annual spend with Home Depot? Just I'm just curious. Anywhere from um, I wasn't doing what I was doing. I had 18 different stores at that point, um, and I only dealt with key account relationships. Yeah, and it was anywhere from 300k up to six or seven million bucks a year. Um, at the time in like 2018, 6 million a year was like number three for customer spend in a company. So yep. it was a, it was a pretty big deal. Um, and there was all sorts of just rebates and incentives and cooperation, credit lines, the whole nine yards. Like I had a, a speed dial. I had three people in Atlanta supporting that customer. I had a speed dial to the credit guy who, who did all the individual underwriting for the company right. for that account. So it was a lot of just management. I was on a plane every two weeks going back and forth, but um, I had a few customers doing a little over a million a year. I had them doing about six and then most of the other ones were somewhere in that 300 to 750 ish range. Um, but it just depended. It's again, it's, it wasn't the right answer for a lot of people. Um, and it's tough because 
it's it's Home Depot, right? And <laughs> there's a reason I'm not there anymore. Uh, right. My job got very hard towards the end, and it's I can't even imagine doing it now, just listening to what some of my customers are telling me. So yeah. God bless them, love the company. They they do great things for their people and associates, but sure, it's harder and harder to do business with them from a from a, a scale level now. Yeah, yeah, I've got a good friend that does Home Depot's um, their biggest buyer, and uh, here all kind of sausage making stories all the time from that, but uh, yeah, it's entertaining. I'll give it that. Yeah, exactly. Kind of glad to be watching that from a distance. I want to go on a little bit of a tangent on college ROI. You know, you mentioned you have a son, you mentioned your college dropout. I think the narrative is that maybe college ROI, we thought about differently a couple of decades ago versus today. I think about that with my three kids. Um, I've kind of got a game plan there, but what's, what's your thoughts on, you know, on college ROI, you have any strong feelings one way or the other? Um, I do and I don't. I think um, I, I'm very strong into the anti-MBA crowd. I think you get more out of working in senior leadership, senior management at a, at a corp um, in actual MBA usable experience than you do going and getting it unless you're going to Ivy League. If you're going to get an Ivy League MBA, that will take you way farther. You go to a no-name school like I went to, a little Jesuit college in upstate New York. No one cares about your MBA. It's freaking meaningless. Um, Sorry, it just is. Like If if you're going to get a Harvard, Yale, whatever MBA, good on you. Like That'll pay for itself. Your debt will go away because you'll get that job that'll pay it off. Right. right? But as far as the rest rest of it, it's relationship building, right? I wish I did a better job. So I have ADHD. Didn't find out until my son was diagnosed. So I I did all this as an ADHD guy, undiagnosed to 40. So my entire career path has been just hyper-focus, work my butt off 60, 80 hours a week, deliver results, hyper-focus, and just rinse and repeat all the way through. Yep. Um, not everybody's built that way. There's people out there who aren't going to be able to do what I did. I had really good mentors that instilled a lot of stuff, and I had really good customers that were willing to take the time to teach me the business. Like without them, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing. That's, that's a fact. And my experience while being a college dropout is not unique where I've been and what I've been able to do is extremely unique. I don't know a lot of people who get the opportunity to work at a C level with multiple different operators and see their books and see how they make their decisions and get on planes and travel with their people from property to property, looking at their rehabs, looking at their turns, helping them plan things out, changing things in their operations plan as an employee of another company. Like that doesn't, that doesn't happen. Like, yeah, you can work for multiple different companies and go from place to place in senior leadership, but you're still not going to get access to 15 or 20 or 30 different companies at right. that level, seeing how they do their everything. Yeah. So for me, it's, it was, it was kind of a no brainer for other people. You know, it's, it's, the opportunity is there absolutely in real estate. The opportunity is there to succeed, especially if you're willing to, to get your fingers dirty and then dig in and really learn and understand, but the networking and who, you know, and who knows you is going to take you really, really far. And that's where that whole, you know, Ivy league MBA comes in. You get the Ivy league MBA, you're going to know people, you're going to be able to network, you're going to be able to do things. And when you're ready to leave, you'll have a nice nest egg. You can start your own business. You'll have some idea of what's going on. But this is sort of like, I think my entire career has sort of led up to what I'm doing now. So. I love it. It's a very thoughtful answer. Thank you. Um, it's, it's interesting. I, one of the things I look back 
on, not necessarily as a regret, but something that I would do differently is treating those relationships um, with the, I guess with the importance that they that they carried earlier on in my kind of corporate career. So I was in the corporate world for about 10 years before I started my real estate company. And, um, you know, young 20s thought it was a hot shot and didn't need anybody. And it's like, man, there were so many relationships I could have furthered that far outlasted whatever company we were at, whatever roles anybody had. Like none of that stuff matters a few years down the line, right? So um, I kind of tell try to tell younger people that I work with or whatever, like, hey, these relationships are the most important thing and learn as much as you can, but these relationships um, are the number one thing. So treat it, treat it like that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. That's interesting. So what is a, what is a week? What's a typical week look like for you right now? Oh, uh, so a little bit of everything. Um, I do a lot of research. I do a lot of reading. I have a lot of newsletters that I read. I listen to some podcasts and stuff, mostly current events stuff. Um, but most of my functional week, I take phone calls and emails from my clients who are either looking for advice on something, looking for um, kind of guidance. Sometimes I get down in the weeds. I've done projects like I'm not doing one currently, but I've done projects where, you know, we're doing a 300 unit apartment turn and I'm doing all the purchasing for them. Like cool. I didn't just go and set up all the negotiations with the vendors and set them up on national accounts and all the other stuff. I also actually was doing all of the buying for them, like a, like a owner's rep would in some cases. Right. So, um, that could be part of my week. Sometimes it would be walking properties. Like right now I try to take the entire holiday season and stay local. So I try not to travel too far. So I do a lot of local networking events. I'm really involved in the local real estate investors association, which as you know, there's not a lot of commercial operators there. There right. might be two or three that right. started and want to give back. And that's sort of where I'm at too. I want to give back to the people who want to learn it. Um, so I spend a lot of time helping them set up their meetings and organize. And I do a lot of the technical backend stuff because again, ADHD, I have too many hobbies. And so technology is sort of like a thing um, that I spend too much money on. Anyway, <laughs> um, the... Uh, the, the rest of the week is pretty much just taken up with troubleshooting. Like as we're getting on uh, this interview, one of my clients actually rang in and tried to get a hold of me for something he's dealing with. He's got a 160 doors. He's local. He's trying to to put processes in place so he can scale to become one of the bigger operators, right? He's still right. in that single family, small multi residential. Right. He doesn't have anything commercially. He has nothing over five doors. So he's, he's trying to figure out how to get there. Yeah. And he owns his own and he manages others. And so he's calling me for something that we probably talked about last week to get advice and I'll call him back when we're done. You know, that's, yeah. that's pretty much it. But I do a lot of um, just reviews. Unfortunately, I spend a lot of time in front of spreadsheets. So like I can give people qualified advice on what they're buying and where they're buying from. And if they're paying market rate for stuff, part of my advantage is I get to see what people are paying for things across, you know, 50 or 60 different vendors, current, right. current pricing. So I can look at their stuff and go, yeah, you're, you're really overpaying for this. Yeah. And wow, you have, you know, eight properties in four different states. Are you on any national accounts anywhere? Yes or no? Like you have over 2000 doors. Why aren't you, why aren't you taking advantage of what's available? Well, what's right. available? Nobody knows because nobody tells them because if they don't tell them, then they don't use the buying power. They make more margin. They still have to buy the stuff. 
So it's, it's a little bit of navigating and knowing what's available and what's there. And that's sort of the gap I fill because that was my world. I understand how these companies work, how they pay their people, how they buy their products, how they sign their contracts with their suppliers, and then how they sell to these people. Like there's programs out there from pretty much every major supplier for MRO products, building materials, whatever, that nobody knows about that would melt your brain, the amount of money you're leaving on the table. Yeah. But, you know, this, this one customer who just called me, told me a couple days ago, it was probably Friday of last week. He's like, in the last three months, you've saved me 10 grand a month just from this one relationship. Huge. Okay, cool. Am I you going to cut me a check for that or finder's <laughs> fee? Like what's up? No. Okay. Well, I, <laughs> I guess, I guess I feel good about it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> what, do, who is a client profile? Like, is it all over the place? Is there a pretty defined, like perfect client for you? It's pretty defined. Um, yeah. So my, my ideal client is a buy and hold value add multifam commercial multifamily operator. Sure. It can be family office. It can be REIT. It can be whatever. It doesn't matter. But that's my niche where I can bring the most value because that's where my background is. And yeah. I understand the operations side. I understand what these maintenance guys have to deal with. I understand the tenant side, the curb appeal, the lease up, having designers involved, having architects involved, having you know HUD ADA stuff that has to be met. Yep. All these different things that that you have to have some sort of experience with. Um, but that being said, I also do hard money lending for uh, self storage. <laughs> so nice. I like first position lean. That's what I do. Like that's like I like having that. So I'll JV. I'll do first position lean, but I I don't do syndications myself. That's not my shtick. I like having some sort of uh, return on return of capital when there's no return of capital or on capital. Yeah. So. Debt, debt position versus equity. Right. Yeah. You got yeah. it. Makes sense. Um, is on the, in, on the storage stuff, is that new construction or that's people going and buying existing assets? Um, right now it's existing. I do. So yeah. that the, the storage rebellion started here locally where I am up in Rochester. So explain some that of the me. guys, so, some of the guys who do that basically came to me and were like, Hey, we've got this thing you want in. Yeah. Okay. Let's go. What's, and, what's and the storage back. rebellion? So it's a, uh, it's a, like a networking mastermind group of storage oh, okay. investors that started okay. like, but they started before storage was cool. So they started in like 2016, yeah. 2015, something like that. Yep. Um, and the, the founders of that group were all part of the local real estate investors association that I'm part of. Yeah. So got it. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Um, you see a lot of multifamily operators. How many states are you, you know, are you in, I guess, as an advisor or working with clients? So right now, I think I'm in 13, but at any one time I've been at about 22 since I went out on my own. I, I try to keep track of it. So I've because I'm sort of a one-man show, I'm actually completely a one-man show out of some outside of some virtual, you know, VAs and and whatever. And my wife, when she feels like taking pity on me, um, <laughs> she, the uh, most expensive employee. It is time. absolutely um, the uh, I guess jobs and properties. I mean, I've I've been able to basically create 5 million in annual NOI for my clients. And that's across maybe, I guess I'm getting close to three dozen clients in the last four years. Um, and it's about 70 million in asset value, which is great, but it's meaningless if they're not going to sell. Like it's, it's cool to say, oh yeah, my asset value is this. Well, it's cool if you're going to refi, it's cool if you're going to sell, but it doesn't really help you if you're just going to hold this. And that's really where my core client is. So it's more about that. 
you know, increasing the NOI, increasing the ROI, cutting down the maintenance. And a lot of it comes down to, okay, well, if you do part A, part B and C fall in place over time. So this, I try to make sure that everything I recommend and all the stuff we put in place has a complete payoff within 24 to 36 months. And if it goes beyond that, then it becomes a, is this something you want to do or not? Right. And it comes down to their playbacks. Great. Yeah. That's and great. that's, that's kind of the goal, but it doesn't always work obviously because sure. there are certain places where, you know, perfect example, we went into a property in Erie, Pennsylvania, 700 and something doors, biggest apartment complex there. You can look it up. We suggested that they do a, a green up program, went to see there's no utility help or anything. They're doing a complete rehab of the whole place going from a, a D to a, a C plus ish, yeah. maybe a B minus and in, in a, on a good day. Yep. And went to the city and they were like, yeah, we're just going to charge you $84 a month, whether you do this water green up package or not, we don't really care. Well, what do you mean? Like, we're just going to charge you 84 a month and you're going to pay it. And if you cut down the water use, good on you, we're not going to give you anything for it. Well, there goes your ROI outside of the maintenance reduction. <laughs> so yeah. like, it's the first time I've ever actually run into that where they were like, yeah, pound sand, but yeah. You know, and these are the place was built in the seventies. They had toilets there that were eight and a half, eight, eight gallon flush. Like they didn't care. They didn't care. Yeah. Blew my mind. <laughs> that's on doors. That's that's a big property. That's a big property. Address. That's a big property. My goodness. Big property. Biggest one in Erie. Yeah. Yeah. Um so easy to find if anybody wants to look it up. <laughs> right. You can see it from space, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. what since you've got kind of a particularly unique vantage point, right? Um, is there low hanging fruit that a lot of multifamily operators can do? There's multifamily operators listening. We're a multifamily operator. Uh, there's aspiring multifamily operators listening, or maybe just passive investors, but is, have you seen a recurring pattern of gosh, why is, why is everybody making the same mistake or kind of some low hanging fruit that operators can, can do better on? That's why I started the business, honestly, is because there's a lot of that low hanging fruit there. It's not all, it's not all this crazy stuff. The real returns, there's, there's two places the returns come in. And one is, um, that that you can see immediately. One of them is figuring out what your buying power is and trying to leverage that across your whole portfolio. Mm -hmm. If you're managing a property, whether you've got a, uh, uh, JV equity stake or not, the reality is that all of these vendors, the HD supplies, the GE direct, Maytag direct, um, you know, whatever Lowe's is calling their, their flavor of the month this year for their stuff. They try to keep your, your properties separated mm-hmm. because they can charge higher vault, higher margins right. and kind of manage it hands off. You can set your company up on a national account program. Same thing with Sherwin Williams, where it looks at everything and take that buying power and get discounts, get rebates, get other incentives, get increased service levels, get all this stuff that people don't talk about, but it's there. People are doing it. I've done it. I've been doing it for years. And it's in a lot of cases, it's 10, 15, 20% off of whatever they're paying now. And that for, and from an NOI perspective, all of your maintenance product, if you're doing a rehab, you're doing a CapEx, you're doing whatever, 20% is a lot of freaking money. Like that adds up fast. Yeah. Yeah. If you can million dollar budgets, right. On the renovations. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, so that's one of them. The other one is 
people don't always plan for failure. And so I, I always tell everybody when you're doing a spec, if you don't have a spec, get a spec. But if you're, when you're doing a spec for your portfolio, whatever it is, always plan for the lowest common denominator from a resilience standpoint. So all of the things you're putting in, all of the decisions you make, plan for that to go sideways. Plan yep. for the worst tenant you've ever had to go in there with dogs, with cats, with whatever, and trash it. So people using Pergo or laminate floors, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's literally cardboard with a picture of flooring stamped on it. Why are you putting it in a rental? It should not be something that is done in 2023. And yet it still is because it's like 99 cents a square foot. And right. the other stuff is a buck and a quarter to three bucks a square foot. Yep. So people still use it, but it never works out in their favor because they ignore the labor side. They ignore what's that going to cost me? Is it cheaper to put this vinyl product in that cost me two bucks a square foot now? Or is it going to cost me more in labor replacing this floor every two years as opposed to leaving this one in for 10? Which one's going to pay you back the most over time? Yeah, and that's yeah. the part that gets neglected. They don't they don't look two, three, five years down the road. They look, well, my budget is this. Well, I hate to tell you, but your budget's probably wrong. I, right. I, I don't have a nice way to say that, but it'll pay itself back over time. And you need to build a business case for those decisions. And that's where looking at total cost of ownership for everything comes in. Because if you start putting everything into that window of, of TCO for all your business decisions, it becomes a top-down strategy where the, 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 the ownership, the executive level is looking at everything and going, okay, well, we're incentivizing our people via payroll, via all this other stuff to just light money on fire because right. we're paying them and we're rewarding them for coming in under budget and on time or early. And so they're cutting corners and they're making these decisions and then we're giving them bonuses based on that. But we're That's not right. taking those bonuses away two years from now when the stuff is falling apart and our CapEx budget is exploded. That's so right. how do we incentivize them to fix that down the road? And that's the question that people need to ask because it's a strategy thing. It's a top-down thing. And then you have to incentivize the field that executes it around that. And that's where every single organization is different. You keep, like property management and real estate, the markets are different. They're fragmented. The subs are different. But yep. the process is essentially the same. Right. So you can carbon copy stuff, but you can't carbon copy systems and processes and standards and employees and, and company, just internal operating ethics and the, that, that feel. Everybody wants to talk about company culture. Well, company culture changes from, from company to company. And real estate can be kind of toxic sometimes. <laughs> Maybe not as bad as retail, but it can be pretty bad. Like we're, we got some thick skin and we, we have a lot of locker room talk that happens, whether it's right or not, it's the reality of the business. Yeah. And, you know, another reality is that we pay people to make bad decisions and we encourage it. Sure. Yeah. If you're not looking through that TCO lens, what is, uh, you mentioned a lot of your clients are long-term. What does that mean? Uh, long-term buy and hold. You know, a lot of these syndications are three to five years. What What's your definition, or what do you see in your client portfolio on on what that is? Is it Is it twenty years? Is it what, you know? What do it's you usually they'll all say they're going to hold this 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 stuff for twenty years. Yeah. Um, life changes things, right? Priorities change. People yeah. want to reinvest in stuff. They want to liquidate capital and and move stuff. So it could be 
five years, seven years, 10 years. Um, most of it they say is going to be 20. I've only been doing this since 2019. So I don't really know what the truth is going to be. Right. I've definitely well, had projects did. where they were like, I'm going to own this for 20 years. And then two years later, they're out of it. It's all for so, sale, right? Well, I mean, it, the reality is that nobody's going to hold it and operate a property that's not cash flowing the way their business plan predicted. Right. Like they're just not, they're going to get out of it and they're going to do something else. Like the best laid business plan works until something doesn't work. That's right. That makes sense. What are you seeing out there for kind of current market conditions? I mentioned we're talking at the end of 2023 here. We're <laughs> pretty well into uh, an aggressive hiking cycle from the Fed. Um, you've got your eyes on a lot of different operators. I think that's a cool vantage point. Like I said, what, what are you seeing out there? There's a good amount of distress. There's a good amount of issues with, uh, with making waterfalls work, um, making right. sure that you're, you're hitting your, your important vendors and taking care of your important people on, on your properties. And it's challenging. It's tough. It's tougher than it's been in a long time. It's, as long as I can remember, because I got into the multifamily side, like I said, of like around 2014, 2015. Right. So that's really been kind of where my experience is from, but I was selling building materials to home builders in 07. Like that's, you know, I've seen similar things happen, but I think we're, we're in a different place where maybe it's not going to be completely crushing the residential side. And it is going to, to, to cause some pain on the, the, the multifamily side. And I don't know a single operator who hasn't been affected by what's happening right now. Of course. Yeah. Um, and even, even the family offices that try to do JVs on everything and go, you know, very, very little debt, they're still getting hurt, let's say. And it, I don't think it's going to cause them the same amount of pain that it's causing some of these greener syndicators. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, time will tell, right? It's, it, it, there's a lot of distress in the market. We've only, I think we're at the, the, the tip of the iceberg. I don't think we've seen how bad it's really going to get. I think the next six months will probably bring a lot of that to light. Um, but again, you know, this is, this is why I'm here is to try and help people fix stuff and, and make more money and get some more NOI and avoid some of the avoidable issues by just doing a little bit of research and being more aware of, of what's happening. And I think that there's been a, a pretty big, um, wake up call out there to people who are trying to, you know, right, right the boat and, and, and keep on sailing as the tide goes out. So, sure. um, you know, for me, it's, it's odd timing because I opened this doing this in 2019 and didn't really anticipate anything like this, um, anytime soon, but here we are. So, yeah, that's right. Here we are. I mean, this, these rate hikes will impact every facet of business, um, in the U S maybe globally when, well, I guess who, who should reach out to you and when, right? Like, you know, you got kind of a spectrum of clients, but who's, you know, who's ready to talk to you and, and, um, and benefit from that. Right. Um, so as much as I'd like to say everybody, I don't have that kind of time. So, um, the, uh, the, the reality is that, that my niche is really when you're getting ready to go into any type of expansion, whether you're, when you're trying to get ready to scale, when you're trying to get ready to do a rehab or a big CapEx, when you're maybe ready to do uh, a, an acquisition and you need 
another set of eyes for due diligence that might see things a little bit differently. That's mm -hmm. kind of where I like to get involved. Um, what project. What's that? What size project makes sense? I mean, honestly, if it's a single property that's being acquired, it doesn't really make sense for anything under a hundred doors. Um, like I have a book that's coming. I, I have a blog or a newsletter. I've, I've got the podcast. If people want to pick up on, you know, the basics and do it themselves in that scale of project, it's probably going to be more affordable, <laughs> quite honestly. Um, and I don't know when the book is going to be out. I'm still waiting for trademark stuff. I should know in a month. So nice. Yeah. How's the, how's the book process been? I hear it's hard. It's kind of been a cluster because I didn't want to self-publish. So I, right. I wrote the book and got the outline done and shopped it and got some responses and some, okay, well, we need to do this and we need to do that. And then my trademark attorney was like, well, you need to wait. And then it took 18 months to get the wow. trademark to where it is now. Wow. Uh, yeah. I filed it in June of 22 and now after here we are. Was... Like oh, after yes. the book was done. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, it was because I, I wrote the book and then I was like, oh, I need to trademark this name. And it was the TCO method, right? It's the podcast, it's the book, it's the newsletter, yep. it's the website, it's whatever. So my lawyer is like, yeah, now you got to just put everything on hold until we get this figured out. So you can print the book with the registered trademark on it and all that sure. stuff. And then it all fell apart because it took 18 months. So I got to start over from scratch. Yeah, And I figured out I might as well just wait. And that's actually given me opportunity to rewrite a bunch of chapters and add a bunch of stuff and kind of put what's happening financially right now into perspective. So right. it's, it's kind of been good that I took a break, uh, but it's, it was a nightmare just getting the, getting it shopped and, and finding four or five different publishers and trying to, to work through their paperwork and finding an agent to do most of that work after I slammed my head into a wall for a month. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, been I, my uh, impression of getting a book done is remains unchanged. After yeah. Unfortunately, that. I think that's pretty accurate. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, Annie, this has been great. I really appreciate it. What's the podcast called and where can somebody listening connect with you? Uh, so the podcast is called the TCO method. It's everywhere. It's on YouTube. It's on Spotify and Apple and all that other stuff. Um, they can find me on my website at andymcquade.com. They can go to the tcomethod.com. Um, both websites are, as always, under construction and, and being updated. And new stuff is being done. And we're making it you know, SEO friendly for YouTube and all that other crap. So oh, yeah. like a bunch of stuff is missing that used to be up there. And it'll be back up eventually, I promise. It's just working through the software stuff. And changing the copy and getting it all perfect. So yeah, yeah. And, and that, that's there. Crap. And they good. can find me on LinkedIn and Instagram and all those other places. Very good. Well, we'll link to that in the show notes. If you're listening, you can scroll down the, past the description and click through and connect with Andy. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for, for coming on the podcast. I uh, enjoyed the conversation, took some good notes here and learned some stuff. So thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate the time, Devin. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been awesome. awesome. Alrighty. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, See you. Man. See you. Thank you for listening to the DJE podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com.